I say this to say that NFTs will kind of come for everything. I think all of our ticketing will be on chain. You know, it's just it's just a more efficient way to keep ledgers of information in, in a composable way too. So like if I, you know, can prove uh, that I was at a certain concert at a, at a certain time and it's immutable and I was like definitely there, that can be used to, you know, give me first access to VIP events, backstage passes. That's just one of the many, many examples. So I think that everything that we're used to um, in the real world, so to speak, will also be coming to blockchain as well. I think the reason that photography as an example or 3D art kind of is thriving so much right now and has been over the past few years is that it's very native to this type of technology. Um, photography itself, I would argue, is a form of blockchain technology. You're kind of, you know, creating a time chain of, of human history and, and the history of the visual world around you. And the the value and import of, of those instances, those blocks that you're minting are kind of determined by a decentralized community consensus, right? Like the most famous photographs in the world are ones that we can all recall. And that's that's a really cool consensus mechanism. So I think that what's happening with technology is the more we can interconnect and create our own niche communities, the more like people can really find their true identities online. And I think that's probably the most beautiful thing about what's happening with crypto art right now. The boys got PhDs when it comes to talking about NFTs and that's nifty. That's nifty. All the great artists, they come to this place to talk about the crypto space and that's nifty. That's nifty. That's nifty. Your hosts for tonight's podcast are Tyler, Larry, and Slime Sunday. Damn, that's nifty. Hey, Alex, how's it going? Hey, guys, how's it going? Good, good. Dave's outside. It's an awesome looking day. I wish we did the same thing. Damn, it's beautiful. I'm actually in Massachusetts. Oh, yeah, it looks like a Cape house. We should go hang out. It's not. It's actually, I'm on the other side. I'm uh, I'm in Great Barrington. Oh, okay. A little far. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hi, Dave. So. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice Dave. to meet you, sir. Big fan of all ships. Oh, thanks, man. We just launched our store. I'm really excited about that. Uh, never, I've never had like a merch store before, so it's fun. Be merching um here i'll drop a link you can check it out we have a couple we have a lot coming but right now we have three products but the fun part is is that we've um web threeified it so if you hold one of my nfts you get it you can log in and it reads your wallet and you get a 20 percent discount i think we got every nft in there too so hey Vinny. hey everybody thanks for pulling all this together yeah thanks for uh you know accepting my uh my pitch <laughs> We were surprised, to be honest, like, um, you know, we're kind of below the radar. We've, we've spoken with Dave before in the past, but uh, super glad that, you know, someone from Super Rare wanted to give us a talk. <laughs> yeah, I found you guys through um, Carlos Marcial's podcast episode, and I had just interviewed him for Super Rare. I know Alex ran a piece with Carlos, so I was like, this feels like that kind of synergy <laughs> that people are always talking about. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um I figured this is just kind of like a roundtable of, of Web3 media, right? Is that kind of what we're shooting for here? We're all under the radar, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. Relatively speaking. 
So I figure we should start off by doing something we usually don't do on this podcast, which is introductions. Um, We kind of go in blindly and pretty much just have the title of who's going to be on and then people kind of figure it out from there. But I'm Tyler. And I'm I'm Larry. From That's Nifty. People might recognize our voices if our listeners are tuning in and then just go around the room. Um, I'm Vinny, otherwise known as Virginia Valenzuela. I'm the managing editor at Super Rare Magazine. Someone raise their hand. I'll, I'll go. Hi, I'm, I'm Dave Krugman. I'm the founder of All Ships. Um, you can find us at allships.co. Uh, it's a community for contemporary creatives, a lot of uh, Web3 minded people. I'm also a crypto artist. Uh, I'm a photographer. I sell my work as NFTs. And uh, yeah, I just love talking about all this stuff from the artistic perspective and also from like a philosophical perspective as well. I'm Alex Estrick, uh, editor in chief at Right Click Save, uh, which is the editorial arm of Club NFT. Uh, Club NFT is a software startup um, dedicated to uh, protecting, supporting, and empowering NFT artists and collectors. And Right Click Save is uh, an independent magazine dedicated to all things blockchain, NFT, and Web3. Awesome. We're kind of new to the media game. It like really wasn't like our background or anything. We kind of just started up the podcast with the thought of, hey, this is a really momentous like revolution in the art scene and kind of wanted to document that. And some people run and grab their cameras to document things like that. We were like, let's just grab some mics and talk to people who are around the space. And it's been I don't know, almost a year and a half now. I'm still just cranking them out every Monday. Some Thursdays we'll drop episodes. And it's been a, a great learning experience, right? For this entire NFT world that we're living in at the moment. And it's been a lot of fun, you know, that we're not really um, trying to disrupt anything. It's more of just documenting exactly like what's happening. I think historically, uh, we'll look back on these episodes as like a moment in time where we're really proud that we got the mics out, you know? Yeah, I feel like that archival element of journalism right now in this space is really cool. Like, um, Dave actually came with us to Mexico City when we were um, kind of talking about the art culture that's happening there. You know, they call it Crypto Valley. And like, who would have thought this like huge, you know, kind of um, really friendly and innovative community was, you know, in the spot. And I definitely felt like this is like going back in time to Paris in the 20s and like knowing that that kind of energy is, you know, present in both the artistry and in the technology that's like pushing this space forward. And I feel like that's, you know, it's very rare to know that you're living in such a riveting time and for us to be writers and photographers and artists and, you know, just being able to catalog it is really exciting. It it does feel like they're like, we're all interconnected in a way where, you know, there's different mediums, but the uh, there's like bits and pieces to, to the space that we all kind of encompass. And I feel like there's, opportunity around every corner and whether it's kind of you know angling yourself or really just looking for more information I feel like each one of us that are I guess kind of talking at this point now here are connected in that way where there's you know whether it's print media photography whatever it might be um, you know it's important to actually have this kind of jotted down and, and and be recorded and then also give artists a voice and kind of be you know uplifting in a way um and I feel like that's kind of the ethos of this of Web three in general. I wouldn't have even known that there was a Web two if 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 we weren't here accidentally, you know. So um, I don't know, man. It's kind of like they, you know, there's an opportunity around every corner, and just being here is 
feels right in a way. I don't know, but Alex, from from your perspective with Pub NFT, like I, I'm familiar with it. But what was your intro with the group? How did you kind of get involved? Yeah, so um, I used to edit at a magazine called Flash Art, which is quite an old, um, you know, I'm not, it's, it's even pre Web One um, contemporary art magazine. And um, for me, I was uh, unsatisfied with the level and uh, level of interest in digital art, new media art on the part of the traditional or contemporary art world. So I, I felt that there was a conversation that wasn't being had between or in between, you know, contemporary and, and new media. And of course, the NFT really heightened that divide. And it created a, in a way, it created a new community of artists, or at least it harnessed um, a load of amazing creators who previously were undervalued. Um, and so for me, that's that's been uh, very exciting. And that's why I got into the um, conversation was because I felt that it wasn't being taken seriously enough. And one person who was, was Jason Bailey or Art Gnome. Um, and I started out uh, writing a text on uh, all of the data on Super Air at the time, in fact. Um, and that was an attempt at an aesthetics whatever that might mean, um, trying to get, you know, get a handle on, on what um, artists were tagging and what collectors were uh, prioritizing in kind of aesthetic decisions they were making. Um, so that was really how I got into it. And uh, Jason asked me to join him at Club NFT um, in December and we launched a right click save in January. And so that's what we're doing now. And yeah, just, I guess for my part, it's really important to stress that RCS is, there are publications in the legacy world which really prioritize exclusivity because exclusivity is an, in a way a, a means of driving up value. Um, but I think one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that actually in Web3, uh, if you create an inclusive environment, um, as Vinny was saying, something which is, is supportive of artists and collectors and actually accepts that we're living in an age of artist collectors. So a, a kind of curious hybrid community um, then you, I think you have to um, accept that we're living in a different sort of sort of discourse. And so that's very exciting to me, but it's important that it's a progressive and critical conversation. I think there's a lot of evangelization going on at the moment um, for good reason, but I think it, it, you know, I'm also kind of skeptical about, you know, all sorts of new paradigms uh, or people using words like paradigm. So yeah, that's why, how I got in and uh, yeah. Vinny did uh, some work and getting some questions lined up for talking points and stuff. And I wanted to start off with like the first one you mentioned, Vinny, which was how do you know when you found a great story, right? Um, I think from our perspective, we start with, we'd start with an artist and we're really like, most of them end up having a great story. It's not that we're looking for a story per se, but more of just an artist. And then from there, we kind of unpack their stories as we go along. I think Obviously, when you look through our catalog, some stories are better than others or, you know, have different climaxes and things of that nature. But I think they're all great at the end of the day. I think more so for print, I'd love to hear about you guys, how you track down a story or how you think that you might have a good lead on something. Um, I would definitely say um, we're in a very special um, kind of part of our editorial journey because we've been working on gathering writers for the last year. Um, I brought on a bunch of writers from my connections at the New School where I earned my MFA in creative writing 
Um, but also just because, I mean, I'm sure Dave and Alex will agree, like writers just <laughs> are magnetic to other writers and we just learn, you know, about each other's styles and our interests. And so um, at Super Rare Magazine, we have writers that come from, you know, more classical backgrounds, like writing for the New Yorker, or New York Times, who really take a more critical lens. We have a lot of um, art historians who kind of look at NFTs and collecting from that lens, like 20th century into the 21st century. Um, but we're really lucky in that a lot of artists actually connect with us and want to share their stories with us. And so in that sense, it's about asking, you know, what is the angle here? You know, because Super Air started as Super Editorial. It was very much like a, a PR wing um, that was dressed up as journalism. And so it was like, this artist is dropping their genesis. So check it out. And this is why it's cool. And so when we launched as Super Art Magazine, we decided to really step away from that perspective and more uh, what is special about this artist's journey or their story or the you know technology of the artwork. Are you playing with smart contracts, you know? And so, um, we really know when we have a good story, I think when, A, we feel like we might get in trouble for writing it, <laughs> which we just published a piece um, by John Reed that was investigating the heavy metal magazine drops. And within four hours, the writer got numerous emails to take stuff out of the article. So I knew that was a win. <laughs> and um, just spending time with the artists, you know, having multiple conversations, multiple interviews, and really spending time with them and their artwork rather than just, you know, a quick Q&A or, you know, talking strictly about the art, you know. Um, I think a good article is just like a good piece of writing, has multiple layers, uh, multiple perspectives. And like Alex was saying, it's not just us getting obsessed with somebody. It's like really, really unpacking who they are, the good and the bad and all the complexities of, of what they do. And I feel like Dave Allships all does a good job with this in terms of like, it attracts people within where, you know, if you like, if you have someone that needs help where you guys have such a tight knit community where someone could ask someone who asked someone else, who asked someone else who eventually gets back. And then you're like, Oh, who is this? You know what I mean? And then you kind of um, have that natural um, kind of progression of introduction um, with all ships being kind of such a strong community based or uh, organizations, the wrong word, but like just community. Um, where do you find, I guess, like those inspirational stories to like yourself? You know what I mean? Because when you find someone and you and you hear their story, it's a little bit different. Like if you're seeking it compared to just like uncovering it, do you, do you I guess, how often do you come across stories where you're like, wow, like I kind of needed that right now? Or that is a that's a great stimulus for me to talk about kind of the ethos of all ships. So I would call all ships like a community company. Um, and stories are one part of community. Um, I think that like, I think kind of what I've learned over the past few years and then tying it back to my career in general is that, and everything I've learned in my life is that really the root of all value is community. I mean, if you're a trillionaire with nobody around, you know, you're just a, you're just a person trying to survive. Right. So, you know, money and, or tokens or any, you know, any wrapper we put on this stuff is truly just a way for us to transport um, community value through space and time. And so when I started All Ships, it was really kind of 
grown out of my experiences building communities in in different layers of the internet um you know all the way from my earliest days <laughs> i remember making geocities websites um to, up through uh instagram where myself and my friend jay and silva would um you know host gatherings of photographers and meetups all over the world where hundreds of people would attend and just realizing like all and then like you know brands would start to come in and try to work with us and, and latch on to our communities and i realized that advertising was kind of an attempt to buy community and if you can build your own communities um you're building a tremendous amount of value no matter what you're doing i think you know applying that to this modern phenomenon that's happening right now i think this is the first time where that community building kind of kind of is having like a native currency in in web 2 it was very much about you know how much attention can you accrue at any cost um and then how you know how efficiently can you convert that attention into actual currency uh and you, there's a lot of loss along the way you know brands and and um middlemen end up taking you know 99% of that as far as i'm concerned so what's happening now is really interesting because communities are being empowered by the fact that they're able to hang on to a lot more of the value that they're generating within their communities so the stories that emerge on all ships are kind of stories that emerge from the communities that we're building um i'm really interested in talking to people who are you know doing unique things who are bringing people together who are supporting other artists i love talking to collectors and figuring out you know why they're taking so much many resources and pouring them into to different you know artist communities and stuff like that i think that's a really that's that's like the main driving force of the all ships brand is how do we you know increase the tensile strength of the bonds that are being formed in online spaces i think one really important thing that we're trying to do with all ships is bring those online relationships into reality the analogy i love to use here is like it's like you know the in real life experiences are like the rebar and the concrete um once i meet somebody in person like it's much a, a much stronger um you know community connection uh than if i just uh have an online relationship that's much easier to walk away from than it is when we're all like you know hanging out playing chess uh eating pizza listening to our friends play music um so yeah the the whole kind of this whole space has been really fascinating and the whole point of all ships is to make our communities that are invested and interested in this space as strong as possible and as supportive as possible so that there's truly space for everyone big fan of all ships thanks man <laughs> big fan of you guys too appreciate it um another question that vinny brought up was like in this age of like attention grabbing and shilling like how do you separate like the artists that you're selecting to have on like how do you balance like the promotional aspect versus like just telling the story and what that reminds me of is like i would think that about half the people we talk to are people that we go out and initiate contact with versus another half that might float around in the DMs or our artists' recommendations, right? So we get a lot of recommendations from artists we've had on. Hey, you should go talk to this person. Um, I I don't really, I mean, I guess ours has a, a bit of a promotional aspect to it. We usually like to time them up with releases. If an artist, you know, has something coming up, we'll like delay a release to kind of align with that. But that's not usually the point. It's more of like we see it as you know, you can only learn so much about an artist looking at Twitter, you know, 140 characters at a time, really like to give an artist a platform to have, you know, an hour conversation with us who are just two regular guys who weren't into art collecting before NFTs. You know, we just got started in 2020. So like this was new to us. Our friend Slime Sunday is an artist um, you know, that does digital collage work and kind of got us introduced to this world. 
Um, so a lot of the people we had on at the beginning were friends of Slam Sunday, which was really easy for us to gain credibility in the space and made it easier for us to you know work with people on through DMs to get them on the podcast. But I don't think we do promotion first. It's definitely storytelling first, get to know this artist. Like we have giving them our co-sign by basically saying we want them to be on our podcast. But other than that, it's really, it's all about the storytelling. Like we deny a lot of people that come to the DMs that are just looking to pump, you know, a PFP project. If it's not like artist driven, artist led, doesn't use the technology in like a new way that's exciting or anything like that. It's usually not something that we're going to be picking up. So uh, any other thoughts on that, Larry, from like RN? I just, I think I find that a lot of times when we're talking to people about the work that they're either introducing or just created or in the process of finishing, uh, we can we provide a little bit of like an outlet for them to explain and not just explain, but kind of get a feel for what their message is going to be because there's an inevitable aspect of, you know, advertising in this space at this point. And as it matures, it, you know, just becomes more, industrialized in a way um so i feel like at the root all we're trying to do is you have people be able to talk about what they're putting out genuinely and um i don't know i feel like we were able to provide a little bit of a, a comfortable place to just kind of you know chop it up and really you know judging for his own when it comes to just figuring out what you're doing how you create why you create and um you know kind of putting a why behind it um, it's a good point. Like, for example, no pattern came on and told us about the project infinite pressure that he'd been working on for like seven months. And during the process of him explaining to it, he realized this was the first time he had ever like talked about the project in such a grand sense because it was getting ready for release. And like, it was emotional for him, you know, and like, um, it was cool to hear him explain it for the first time. Like it actually had come out of his brain onto audio that now everyone can listen to. And I think that that's what we're here for, you know? Alex, from your end, like, I find it like, I don't have a background. I mean, I have a, I have a journalism degree, so I understand like the back end of, you know, writing, reporting and stuff like that. Where do you kind of um, find now with like the transition to this digital age, um, you know, any challenges from a print perspective? Because there's so many mediums out there with, you know, new media that it's just ever evolving. You, you kind of see it on all fronts, like you know, athletes being in media, giving firsthand perspectives. Where do you guys see, you know, between Club NFT, right click and, and kind of adjusting with the times of these mediums? Yeah, so uh, you're more qualified than I am. I'm actually not a qualified journalist at all. So uh, I just have a piece of paper. <laughs> um, I think actually the, 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 actually the point you're making about promotion is, is a central problem uh, for me. Um, I, I personally feel that um, the more critical the conversation, um, i.e. The, the less promotional what we publish, um, that is the ultimate promotion of the space. Uh, because for, for me, you know, you really do need to create the conditions, I think, for uh, serious critical reflection. And of course, generally speaking, uh, that needs to be as far as possible objective. Of course, the idea of any kind of you know universal objectivity is itself highly ideological and problematic. So we, uh, it's very important, like you suggest, that we are inclusive at all times, um, and that everyone gets heard. Uh, that might be a national conversation, um, but to give an example, we just published a text on um, what I call the the new digital geographies of Tezos. 
and that was really about the the kind of um, the interface, I guess, between national communities and digital communities, and um, where you know national identity still exists and national regulatory frameworks are you know really exist IRL and in the digital context. Um, but also how, you know, digital systems like the blockchain can actually be, in a sense, emancipatory. Um, but of course, th that is always um, yeah, needs to be taken with, I think, a pinch, a pinch of salt. Um, so for me, yeah, it's, it's um, the, nothing about my job is remotely promotional. Um, I would say that, uh, but the whole outcome, the whole output is promotional. Um, so the, the idea is that, you know, ultimately... Um, if people are going to take artists in this space seriously, um, we need to have a, a critical discourse. And I think to come back to something that Dave said, that one of the things I found, particularly, for example, uh, with regards to generative art, which is really having a kind of uh, a revival. Um, I once used the word renaissance. I'm not going to do that again. Um, <laughs> but it's like it, it's like it's clearly it's having a moment. But people, I think, just we don't have the terms to analyze this stuff. Um, so interviewing Tyler Hobbs is very helpful. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that's a promotion of Tyler Hobbs because we also discussed uh, issues surrounding, you know, fair use of Fidenza, for example. So it's like a really critical analysis and we're really super grateful to him for engaging with us on that. So I think, it, yeah, it's like, um, for me, what's interesting about the generative art uh, thing is that um, communities like FX Hash are... Um, have are incredibly smart. You know that the, the people who operate within Web three are all highly intelligent. Many of them are tech engineers, and many of them are brilliant writers who just haven't had a platform to write. So what we found is that, for example, a good example I usually use is a guy called Peter Bauman, who goes by the name of Monk Anthony, who's a collector on uh, on FX Hash. A super smart guy. And he wrote this text for us on the new form of long form generative art. And I really feel, and Tyler Hobbs feels, and a lot of, I think, the leading generative artists feel that that text is, uh, understands what uh, these artists are working with, the ideas, etc., cetera, um, in a way which hadn't been expressed before. So for me, it's coming back to Dave's idea of the sort of community driven writing. Um, that is fascinating because it used to be that you would have, you know, top-down elite uh, kind of culture, which was, you know, the, the kind of cultural equivalent of trickle-down economics. Um, but now you see that we have this kind of grassroots um, writing, um, which, you know, it'll take time. But I think we're seeing some amazing things being written in a public context. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think Super Air's doing that. I've always admired Super Air's editorial. Um, and all ships, I think, you know, it, the, the more, I think we're all pretty unified as well. Like it, it, in web two, you know, I think the instinct might've been to that, you know, basically value is driven up by competition. I think that is not generally the, the party line now. So I, I feel very happy and lucky to, to be invited here. Um, but also I think there is a sense of shared values here. Um, but I would, yeah, just to come back to the beginning, I would say, um, People wouldn't read our magazine if they viewed it as promotion. But I think as a result of that, it is the ultimate promotion of the space. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes self-sustaining in a sense, right? Where you just kind of attract truth seekers. Yeah. It's a good way to put it. And, and I think too, like 
like Vinny from your end, what, what attracted you to, um, I guess, what was your transition to, to finding super air in your group and, and what kind of attracted you to the work that they were doing and to want to get involved? Um, so, so my journey is very random, which is, you know, I was a professor of journalism and new media and creative writing. And so I was, um, basically like a freelance writer who was writing for the independent and wired about tech and education. Um, and social justice issues. And I actually had zero understanding of Web3 <laughs> and NFTs. I had heard of them, but I knew zero. And then I hit this point where I very much saw the system of academia as a failing system. I had friends who were adjuncts for 20 years. And I was like, I can't pay off my student loans if I am an adjunct for 20 years. I can't buy a latte if I'm an adjunct for 20 years. <laughs> So it, it was very dire for me. And so um, I was editor-in-chief of Lit Magazine, which is an arts and literary magazine based in New York. And I was just looking for any kind of editorial job and was lucky enough that the team at Super Rare, um, you know, saw, saw some potential in me. And I think those of us from an academic background and especially writers and, you know, curious people, like we can become a pseudo expert in anything in six months, you know? And so um, I took a course at Columbia Business School. I spent a lot of time talking to the engineers and the more like techie people at Super Rare and just writing stories about the space. And I quickly became like very much obsessed with the potential of blockchain technology and, you know, what um, Alex was talking about earlier, you know, the fact that for the first time in history, artists make enough money that they can also be collectors and have a say in how the ecosystem works. I mean, that's revolutionary. Like, I never thought I'd ever be an art collector. And now I own like 20 NFTs across Ethereum and Tezos. Like, there's just so much available. And the more I get into like the possibilities of DeFi and, you know, just new ways of imagining our society, um, you know, through you know, reading new books about economics, you know, radical markets, the price of tomorrow, just looking at ways that our, our culture can create the necessary like, you know, conditions to, to live in a better place and for people to kind of live justly and uh, with dignity. And I think that, you know, NFTs are a really great gateway into the crypto community because art has always been a wonderful way to connect with other people. You know, that's a community driven uh, asset because it's all about like, where did the inspiration for this piece come from? And as a writer, I'm also really excited for the possibilities of NFTs. We're starting to see the beginning of film NFTs and music NFTs. And um, as a poet and former dancer, I'm very interested to see poetry NFTs and dance NFTs. and you know, like when you sell a book of poetry, you're lucky if you get $1,000 and a few sales. <laughs> like, and you see people making like tons of tons of ETH on like single pieces of art. And it's like, you know, that's the kind of empowerment that's really important when we're stuck in this capitalist society where, you know, no matter how good of a person you are, you can't survive on goodness <laughs> yet, maybe soon. <laughs> That's kind of where our stories come from, or at least the ones that I write and the ones that I look for. Like, I just, I, I'm really into that optimism because, you know, crypto not only changed, you know, the life of artists, like Dave included, but like it changed my life. It cre crypto created a job for me. That was my dream job that I never knew I wanted. Yeah, I think that's what's so awesome about the space is like there's, 
there's so many different topics that you could go into, whether it's the art and culture side or the technology side, or just the, the creation of creator run economies, right. Where it's like cutting out middlemen left and right, where creators can actually create not what corporations are paying them to make that's kind of in their style, but like fully, this is a passion project that I want to pursue. We actually get to see the outcomes there, right? Where it's like, this is actually what would be getting delivered through corporations and stuff if they just allowed the artists to create the way they want. Yeah, and like to bring their own cultural production, you know, like you don't have to move to New York and make a bunch of crap about New York. Like you can write about your experiences all over the world from the middle of nowhere. (laughs) <laughs> from countries that aren't art capitals. Like that's really exciting. As, I think you bring up an interesting point too with like different artistic mediums kind of being onboarded. And now this is, I guess, a, another specific question for you, Vinny, but where do you see like, is the, like the super rare, are they talking about or like what's the conversation? I guess anyone can feel this. What's the conversation around, um, you know, new artistic mediums like film and poetry and dance coming into you know, the NFT space, because uh, the possibilities are boundless, really. And, you know, we came in kind of hot and heavy on the art side. And, and that was kind of the the intro. And Tyler said something a couple of days ago where he was just like, I just have I been buying ETH with NFTs this whole time? Like, I, like, like just coming back. But I guess anyone really that wants to take this, what, where is like the uh, where do you see like these other artistic mediums kind of coming through? So uh, we have this one article in the works that's talking about um, this person um, who finished filming a movie and basically needs money for post-production. And so what they're doing is, um, and it's a movie about dance. So they're selling stills and short clips of the dance film and selling them as NFTs so that they can finance the editing and post-production. And so you also see this in the um, documentary called Minted where they sold NFTs that were donated by various artists that were a part of the project. And with that money, they were able to film this documentary that was literally about NFTs. So they used NFTs to finance a documentary about NFTs. And I think that is just really badass because like going back to like gatekeeping, you know, Hollywood, hello. (laughs) Like, I mean, watch any movie, the writing is abysmal and it's all about action scenes and corny cliches. And it's like really tanking and quality. And that's because that's what they want to sell to people. Um, and so to find new ways of generating revenue so that independent filmmakers, independent photographers, independent writers can create something that can then be sold to mass markets, that's empowering. And that means there's going to be a certain like more community driven, higher level of quality for film. Um, we also just onboarded this space called the Verseverse, you know, Super is a DAO. We have many different spaces so that curation is going to be returned to the community and not just, you know, in some ways kept by the curation team at Super Rare. And so the verse verse is completely dedicated to poetry NFTs. And it's, you know, again, I'm very excited about it, uh, especially when you just think about, you know, there are certain there are certain fields of arts that I feel are very much in danger of becoming totally irrelevant to our culture. Like I'm a poet, I love poetry, but the only people I know who read poetry are also poets, right? (laughs) The only people who like really interesting film are usually people who are into filmmakers or like nerds like us who like, you know, probably watching 1930s French films. Um, But, you know, it's like, it's a really exciting time to make it relevant again. And, you know, 
once again, to, to pump money into the pockets of people who really need it. Um, I'm also really excited about the possibility of music NFTs. Like, you know, there's that, that, that hipster cliche, like I was into that band before anybody else was. Like, imagine monetizing that. <laughs> Like, um, imagine if you're a lifelong renter, like I have been in New York City my whole life, and there are tokens that you can accrue the longer you're in an apartment. And then as the real estate prices go up, the price of your token goes up. So you don't have to be penalized for not having enough money to be able to invest in real estate, especially in a place like New York, where, you know, the entry price is like a million dollars. <laughs> so yeah, NFTs are incredibly, you know, diverse in their use cases and creative, smart people are coming up with new use cases every day inside the arts and out. Yeah, I'd love to add here as well. I, I think one of the common mistakes people make when they think about NFTs is they put it all into one bucket when really um, blockchain technology and, and NFTs uh, it's really just a technology layer. And so there's this constant battle on Twitter that's playing out like PFPs versus one of one art. And I'm like, it's almost like a, a moot point to me to even compare the two things. It's like trying to compare Picasso's of baseball cards. It's like, these are different assets. They have different markets. They have different, you know, purposes within our societies and our communities. And, you know, and I say this to say that NFTs will kind of come for everything. I think all of our ticketing will be on chain. I think you know it's just it's just a more efficient way to keep ledgers of information and composable in, in a composable way too so like if i you know can prove uh that i was at a certain concert at a, at a certain time and it's immutable immutable and i was like definitely there um that can be used to you know give me first access to vip events backstage passes um that's just one of the many many examples so i think that every one of everything that we're used to um in the real world so to speak um, will also be coming to blockchain as well. I think the reason that um, photography as an example or 3D art kind of is thriving so much right now and has been over the past few years is that it's a it's very native to this type of technology. Um, photography itself, I would argue, is a form of blockchain technology. You're kind of you know creating a time chain of, of human history and, and the history of the visual world around you. And the, the value and import of, of those instances, those blocks that you're minting are kind of determined by a decentralized community consensus, right? Like the most famous photographs in the world are ones that we can all recall. Um, and that's, that's a really cool consensus mechanism. So I think that what's happening with technology is the more we can interconnect and create our own niche communities, the more like people can really find their true identities online. And I think that's probably the most beautiful thing about what's happening with crypto art right now because you know if i let's say there's a, a total of 10,000 people in, in the whole world that are interested in my photography um well, the chances that they're in my physical proximity are going to be pretty low but since i have this like you know interconnected collective consciousness of the internet um and then digital objects because of blockchain technology those people can collect and trade my work in a vast global kind of um network uh, and I have I can basically like create my community um, at vast distances across space and time, um, and the technology enables me to uh, have much much deeper communities that are more committed to my specific flavor of of creativity. So that's that's the way I'm thinking about all this as well. A lot of applications for NFTs that I don't even think have arrived yet. Like I think we'll be surprised in the coming years of like what they actually are used for. Like even within governments, I think there's a lot of things that could be 
there's obviously weird bureaucracy and red tape with a lot of the things that they do that could be streamlined by NFT technology with like smart contracts, you know, but we'll see, you know, I think music NFTs are one of the new ones that, you know, we're talking about um, giving royalties back to holders of the tokens. And I think that's a really cool concept that I, I haven't seen play out fully yet, but I can't wait to see like how that grows. And like Dave was talking about, like, you know, you go to a concert, you have your ticket sub as an NFT, and now you get first access to the live DVD and things like that. Like, I think we have to see large artists kind of come in and embrace the technology, mobilize fan bases to get involved. And I think that's where music NFTs will really take off. It's going to take some, a couple of major players in the music space to really mobilize a fan base, because that's kind of what I see what NFTs are in the art world. It's like, these are your number one fans who are willing to give the artist money in, in receipt of some sort of token that they value, right? And it shows that one, you're a super fan of that artist. You want to invest in their, their forward progress, right? For them to continue creating art without the constraints of middlemen and labels and you know that sort of overhead. But I, I just can't wait to see where it all goes. I feel like we're still so early. And I, I hate saying that, but you know we are still early. <laughs> so Alex, have you guys done any deep dives or um... Any any journalistic pieces on any music groups or, or organizations pushing music NFTs or kind of I, I feel like that specific medium has been trying to find its way where like the the core is there but it just hasn't been executed quite yet. You see like companies like Royale obviously where they're pretty you know secure with some you know reliable people and then pushing across a good um, kind of structure and format. But like, what's your opinion? Have you guys done a deep dive in any specific music? areas yet so actually our first community article was uh, called can nfts save the music industry and it was by a, a, a band leader called simon indelicate um whose band is called the indelicates and uh, it was surveying the um potential uh, use case of an nft in the music industry after the band camp sale um and for him as as an artist himself he'd made a lot of money through nfts um, uh, and so that actually is an example where a member of our community uh, is sharing their own real life experience of how they've benefited from tokenizing their music in a way which they weren't previously able to. So that's very exciting to have, I think, real life examples. Um, the question then, it's and the argument sometimes labeled at um, you know, why aren't there more uh, crypto artists from the global south who are making a lot of money? Um, I think there is a, a skepticism on the part of a lot of um, legacy art world players um, about how, you know, how much equity, you know, NFTs are really producing, whether that's for crypto artists, whether it's for potential crypto musicians. Um, the data that I've seen is, is positive but i think and I, but i do think it's important that uh, we get behind probably proof of stake and, and tezos and, and those kinds of enterprises um and then we try and move ethereum bitcoin away from a proof of work not to say that proof of stake is ideal um it does feel like there is no form of consensus at the moment without either environmental destruction or exploitation so i think these are not 
um, perfect solutions. And I don't know personally whether the NFT will work out in the music industry. Um, I see no reason why it wouldn't. Uh, we have some collaboration with a company called uh, Cineverse, uh, which just launched a, a new film starring Ian McKellen, Gandalf, uh, which is called Hamlet Within. And that was just really interesting because they were using the NFT to parcel the movie in a different way. So they would sell chapters as NFTs. And those chapters have the film, but they also have reflections. And those reflections used to be like on a DVD, the content that would come with the DVD. But now that kind of reflective, maybe three-dimensional approach to the art form is something that is, is built into that or bolted onto that NFT. So I think, you know, uh, digital um, media have always had this uh, oscillation between the discrete and the continuous. But the interesting thing about the NFT, of course, is it, it really reinstitutes that idea of a discrete digital object. And so just as far as something like photography is concerned, what interests me is that, you know, in Web2, we've really been living in the age of, you know, mass image flows. Uh, and in a sense, the kind of decline of fine art photography in a way. Um, but what's interesting about the NFT is it, it kind of returns this kind of sacralization of the discrete object. It's just that that discrete object is a digital object rather than an analog one. Um, so, uh, sorry, that's a really like, general response to your question. But I think, um, yeah, I, I, I don't have necessarily, um, I don't know how many use cases there are, uh, but certainly Simon Indelicate was one example of a, of a musician who had some success in the streaming platform economy but who has had a lot of success with NFTs, so. Yeah, with music NFTs, it's it's an odd place to be because obviously if they're releasing songs on, you know, as an NFT, you can most likely still stream them on the major streaming platform. So that's the whole right click save thing, right? So it's like, what takes it to that next level of like, okay, I want to, you know, be a patron of this musician and pay them money to receive this token back. And then it brings in the, the conversation around utility, right? Like, does the NFT need to provide some sort of utility? And there seems to be two camps. I, I feel like I have feet in both where I'm like, I think it's awesome when artists produce an NFT that has no utility. The art can be that, you know, it's just for art's sake is why this is created. But I can also see people utilizing the technology in a way to provide some sort of utility in the future or a new way to use this NFT, um, you know, down the road. But it's music NFTs to me seem like something that, almost has to be paired with something else because of the streaming ability you still have. Does that make sense? So I, I just want to say that I, my personal view is that um, this question of utility, or shall we say functional art, is the most uh, historical thing that's going on with the NFT. Um, basically for 300 years, fine art has been at least uh, rhetorically speaking, it's been branded as functionless. I mean, that was the whole thing with the Enlightenment. You had to be uh, an elite white male spectator with an education to appreciate high culture, right? And that, I think, there is a legitimate claim uh, to say that that was the death of the functional image that existed in this functionless market, right? Um, and what's Fascinating to me, just in a historical sense about the, this, this question of utility, which obviously, as you say, does polarize opinion, is that it, it returns us, I think, very tangibly to this world of images, per se, rather than, as it were, this sort of elite fine art form, which is detached from culture, in a way, or artificially detached, but detached nonetheless. So I'm personally, you know, very positive about the idea of bringing 
functionality or craft back to the conversation around images. But I, for me, like there is a debate with, I have with myself about, you know, are we really living in an age after art? And so that is the thing, you know, traditional um, digital art historians will argue that there's nothing much different about NFT art or crypto art from internet art or post-internet art. Uh, I would argue the opposite. I would argue that actually um, something fundamental has, a fundamental cleavage has taken place in at least how we narrate image culture. I mean, sort of the final point I, I think is always so fascinating is that uh, for me, uh, what's striking about collectibles is that, you know, when CryptoPunks emerged on OpenSea, they were put in like the collectibles camp and that was separate to art, right? But in many respects, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who doesn't see a CryptoPunk as the purest form of crypto art. So we have this situation where we must be living in like an expanded field of art. But as Dave suggests as well, there are categories that have really hardened and re-emerged. But I, I think it's less of a case of like what is art and what is collectible uh, as they're all, we're all living in an expanded field of art, which now has new categories. And anyway, so yeah. That makes sense. I, I feel that as well. Like it's almost like in a way, everything around you can be art. You know, and it's just like, does it need to be in these categories or not? Maybe, but like art is in the eye of the beholder, right? At the end of the day, you like what you like and if that's art and that's art, you know, but it's it's such an, an odd thing to talk about, isn't it? It's like hard to like nail down art and culture. Art is a word and it's a very loaded word, but it's that's all it is as far as I'm concerned. So when people use the word art, of course, it has all sorts of associations. I would say that just with crypto art, I think, and you know, um, Vinny can talk probably more authoritatively on this about super rare, which is very central, I think, to the emergence of crypto art. But you know, to quote Jason Bailey, crypto art is sort of the first global art movement, or NFT is the first global art movement. And I think, I, just, I think it's important that when we talk about uh, NFTs um, and crypto art, we do remember that actually we're talking about. Um, uh, a technology which potentially harnesses the creativity or unlocks the creativity of a load of artists, particularly in the global South, who otherwise were not able to access the traditional art world. You know, Carlos Martial, um, yeah, Ozanachi are just, you know, the Dada, the whole Dada community. You know, that for me is a really fundamental um, thing to recognize. Um, and I think whilst art for art's sake I think as an aspiration does exist for some people I think crypto art is is it's important that it does retain that broad sort of interplanetary scope when you were diving in into Tezos and like looking into that blockchain that's uh it was probably summertime of last year I started looking into Hen when it was popping off and um what I noticed was the influx of these different global subcultures that I hadn't been really um you know, exposed to in the past, like a lot of artists from Indonesia, a lot of artists from Thailand, South America, like really cool art styles that had not been in front of me before. And I thought it was so much fun collecting like back in those days. And it, it, I mean, it still is, but I think Tezos is a hidden gem. And I think that honestly, it could be the answer to music NFTs if that was like a SoundCloud Tezos connection where you could have a bunch of clandestine artists, you know, making like um, at lower entry point NFTs on Tezos where they didn't cost as much money if you were you know, a SoundCloud musician who wasn't expecting to make any money in the first place, 
that seems like a good stepping stone to get into the space. I love Tezos because lowering the price point and also being on a blockchain that has, you know, a much lesser impact on the environment um, really means that there are more people, more creators from marginalized communities. Like there are so many underground communities and movements happening on Tezos just because of that lower price point. And, you know, how exciting is it that you can buy a beautiful piece of art for 0.25 Tez, which is like a dollar. <laughs> and it and it gives you the same amount of joy of buying something for one ETH on known origin or, you know, super rare. Like it really kind of shows that there is this psychological effect that collecting has, um, especially for, you know, millennials, you know, like me, who probably never thought they'd ever be able to own anything. So um, yeah, it's really exciting that like, even like different marketplaces as well as different blockchains generate these different communities and different people. Um, like there's even this artist Neurocolor who we met in Mexico City who has a certain type of NFT that he mints on Ethereum and a certain kind that he does on Tezos. And I think looking at the fact that multi editions are so much more prevalent on Tezos blockchains and like what does it mean to own a one of 10? by an artist that you love versus a one of one, you know, especially if the artist is going to generally make a similar amount of money. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting because it, it just, it hits different pockets of like why you collect and why you want to be a part of um, an artist's journey. Yeah. There's levels to this. We've learned over time. I think we, we went hot and heavy when we first got in and thank God for Tezos when uh, the markets weren't doing so well. And like, we were tied up in a lot of NFTs and, you know, didn't want to sell them because we loved them all so much. So it's like, Tezos gave us a place where we could actually, you know, continue to collect and get that, you know, dopamine rush from, you know, collecting a new artist, which, you know, kept us afloat for a while. <laughs> yeah, and especially when it comes to super rare, like I, I love super rare, of course, but um, I do have issues sometimes with the curation element, just because curation is fully subjective. And there are plenty of artists that I've come across on other platforms who I'm just like, okay, well, why isn't this art to the, the correct level of quality, you know, to super rare? Or are they people who just don't want to be on super rare? That too, you know, there, it really comes to this question of like, which communities you want to tap into, and then like, which um, blockchains you want to support by being a, a creative on that blockchain. I think that also speaks to like the um, creative freedom to kind of go where you want to be. Uh, from a collecting standpoint and from a creating standpoint, I think that having that right to to kind of choose your entry point and then utilize, you know, whatever the, the marketplace may be to, you know, how you see fit, um, you know, that room for kind of creative collecting and, and releasing is is there. And it's kind of, a, you know, never ending conversations uh, that you can have in, in terms of, you know, drop mechanics or, or you know, collector rewards or just kind of, you know, really figuring out all levels of kind of personal curation. Um, I, I feel like there's, you know, as we grow, I think Alex, you put a good, you do a good job kind of encompassing a timeline, right? And, you know, as Tyler said, being early, you can feel early, but it's, you know, kind of feeling, you know, being here in real time is different than, you know, when you zoom out however many years from now and see this point in history. Um, there's going to be more data to back it up. And then you're going to really see kind of how these marketplaces evolve. Um, and, you know, just kind of waiting for that data to kind of be generated by just simply time. I guess going forward, what type of 
like in Alex, I can direct this to you. What type of like, um, you know, marketplace structure do you kind of see as being the on the forefront of sustainable? I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> what's kind of your opinion on on that? You know, general curation from a bigger perspective. I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that. No one's qualified to say, answer anything. No, there are people who are qualified, but they tend to be incredibly left-wing, so would just disavow any market economy. Um, I would say, to, to not answer your, to sidestep your question, I would say I tend to try and slightly change the um, conversation. There have been token economies in the past, and the reason that I, I, I do go on about the idea of fine art as like a historically specific uh, period is because my specialism is Byzantine and medieval art. And that is not really art in the sense of, you know, that we've come to understand it. Um, it's really, you know, generally it's religious imagery or maybe luxury imagery. Um, and so just to give you an example, what's interesting to me about um, Byzantine token economies is that um, they had these, uh, there was a cult of Simeon Stylites in the Middle Ages, and that was a non-monetary economy um, of, of usually uh, ceramic tokens, which people would burn incense on, and they would achieve spiritual healing and medicinal healing, or that was their perception of, of th this, this token. So this was a token which served a, a non-financial, non-monetary um, purpose, right? And it, it does, I think, come back to some of the stuff that Vinny's been talking about to do with how you can use tokens um, within a kind of new form of governance, a new structure. I would just say what's fascinating about the Byzantine example, not to labor it, is that it emerged at a time on the border between, um, you know, basically an Orthodox Christian community and Islam. So you were dealing with an economy which was really like a, a, a kind of, uh, in, a, in a climate of toleration, which is obviously not what you usually associate with the Middle Ages. Um, the only, the reason I stress this is that um, it's important, I think, to remember that tokens have been used throughout history in a, in a way which has not been financialized. So when we, we're trying to understand like um, how a, a, a token might function within like financialized capitalism, um, I think we also need to, to understand that there is, in a sense, something slightly irreconcilable about a token and financialization, because in a sense, tokens have served non-financial purposes. And I tend to, to try and shift the emphasis towards that, I think, if we can, or, you know, because, you know, when we're talking about medieval, we're talking about, you know, uh, pre-feudal property relations or non-property relations or pre-capitalist economies. And, for, you know, for me, the interest, the really interesting thing about NFTs is just the idea that actually having these tokens allows us to think again about possible different economies or different ways communities can share value. Uh, and that might be, you know, financial value or status value, but it might be medicinal, spiritual, etc. There's a writer called Michael Lambeck who says that uh, ritual decommodifies value. Of course, NFTs are the ultimate commodification of value. Um, but I wonder whether there are ways we can think about value or rethink value using tokens, um, which is a non-capitalist. Uh, because I tend to think that that is likely to produce the most equitable um, outcomes. Uh, Tezos is have, doing very well at the moment, I think, in, in creating greater equity um, and basically creating the conditions for communities around the world to generate you know, equitable uh, income. And I, I, my frustration with the, the left 
uh, sorry, I'll shut, shut up in a moment, is the idea that, you know, in a, with a token, you potentially have a way of redeeming what was once called the precariat. Um, but there seems to be a real resistance and a reluctance on the part of the, the left to engage with NFTs as a way of potentially resolving some of these societal, deeply entrenched societal problems that we have. So there we are. A fun way to look at it. I actually never thought about the decoupling of like the finances with this and looking at the tokens in a completely different way. I think the monetary aspect is something that we've you know dealt with before. And it's like, we haven't monetized the podcast in any way. We don't take on advertisers. We don't take handouts from, from people that we interview or anything like that. And, um, you know, it, we don't really know how, or if we even need to monetize anything. We haven't minted anything. We know that we could, we know that we could do some kind of generative project based off quotes from our podcast. And there's a lot of different things we could do, but it feels disingenuous in a way where it's like, we want to keep the money out of it so we can maintain like, um, you know, an air of like authenticity, right? Where it's like- I mean, well, journalistic integrity? Right, yeah, I guess that, yeah. So I have no background in that, but yeah, perfect. That's exactly what we're looking for. It's like, we're not tainted in any way by the money that's coming in because we see it in our politics all day long. And, you know, we don't want to even have the air of that being what we're doing here, so. Well, Alex, I, I love that tangent, um, but I'd love to, to just mention some stuff about the green energy debate. Um, which is the biggest problem with uh, proof of work uh, and basically uh, having the light on in my kitchen and using this computer um, and having my AC on when it's really hot in New York uh, is that we have a power grid in the US that is 40 plus years old. We have lobbies that refuse to allow solar power, which is cheaper than gas and coal to be a prevalent use um, of energy in the United States. And so the biggest problem that I think people get wrong is they say, oh, it's a huge energy lift to use proof of work, to use Bitcoin or Ethereum. But the problem is actually that using ener any energy in this outdated system is bad for the environment. It's already estimated that half of the miners who are mining Bitcoin use green energy. And so I would argue, as we argued in one of our articles um, called The Challenge of the Glory of uh, Making Crypto Green, is that Crypto is actually a leading um, you know, entity in going green. And the more people who follow the example of you know, crypto, the crypto industry at large, the better it's gonna be for the environment. The problem is we still have laws that say you have to use you know, coal and, and gas. And there have been numerous examples of people trying to use solar energy, but because of the monopolies that energy companies have, they're not allowed to use that. They're not allowed to sell their surplus of solar energy to other people in their communities. And so when you're looking at you know, Moore's law that says that you know, technology is basically um, growing exponentially uh, around every 18 months, like since Subaru was founded in 2018, we've already seen you know, two increases. And this has been going on basically since the, the, the late 50s. So we're about to hit an exponential growth when it comes to both the availability of solar and the affordability of solar. The thing that's getting in our way is the government, which going back to um, what you guys said earlier about you know, how efficient, how great would it be if the government could run on smart contracts and get the kind of greed and human error out of politics, I don't think they want that. I think they want to continue to tell us how to live our lives and how to spend our money. And that's why they don't like blockchain and they don't like NFTs and they're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that this stays 
underground and you know regulated in a way that hurts the crypto industry. Um, so you know, going back to I think Dave's whole emphasis on community, like it's really about education, really telling people that no crypto ener crypto crypto energy use is not the issue. Our energy programming is the issue, you know, and just being kind of a little bit more um, zoomed out when we're thinking about issues and not just taking a biased view as we're so, you know, comfortable doing in this political climate. You're saying a centralized government doesn't like decentralization? I'm saying the U.S. government is the worst DAO ever. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. Oh, my God. Put that on a T-shirt. So like in closing remarks, like how, how do you guys think that like new media, web three media is like different than web two or like, what are the, what are some things that we could change that could push this forward, you know, as a, you know, all of us. I think that the best thing that we can strive for, and I think this is again, striving. <laughs> I don't know how realistic this is. I think the biggest problem with legacy media is that it's all completely driven by advertising dollars. And I think that that automatically and immediately corrupts the information that we receive. I mean, I just don't see how it couldn't. Um, I mean, and the further down this path of legacy media we go, the more and more polarized things are becoming because everybody's clamoring for attention at any cost. Even social media, Web2, is strictly based on uh, advertising models and industries. And it's replicating all, it's replicating and amplifying all the same problems that we've had in legacy media as well. So I think this is the, the latest opportunity to, to kind of rewrite the incentive systems for information. And I think that um, in my personal experience, and I know there's a lot of problems with, with Web3, but in my personal experience, it has allowed me to align the incentives of my communities with my own, which allows me to go much, much deeper down the, the rabbit holes that I'm interested in, both through information and through my own art. So, you know, I think one of the scariest things to me is just watching uh, the, the distortion of information as it moves through every layer of, of capitalism. Uh, and I think that Web3 gives us an opportunity to reset again and at least move a little bit closer to, um, you know, I think, for example, using NFTs to crowdfund media where everyone's just chipping in a little bit and there's no specific interests being pushed forward. Um, you know, again, I think that might be a pipe dream, but at, at its best, that's what I think this technology can enable. And the last yeah. thing as a, as a closing shot about NFTs too, I think one of the, the two things about NFTs, I think NFTs are a capture mechanism for community capital. Uh, I think they're a really good way to store um, value that communities generate and, and transfer that value uh, from person to person and from community to community. I think that's very, very exciting. And I also think NFTs are a binding force in communities. Like you said earlier, you know, oh, we, you know, maybe we needed to sell some NFTs, but we, we didn't want to, we were attached to them. I think that when you can tie um, culture to a token and then tie that token to a community, it makes it much harder to exit. Um, and that, that difficulty in exiting is actually like a binding force. It's a glue that can hold communities together. And I think that if you can use that right, um, the, the possibilities are truly endless. Very well said, as you usually are. One thing, like, especially from my time um, as, you know, a professor of journalism, like, I very much believe in ethical journalism. And what Web3 enables us to do is to actually enforce it because we have a ledger to, you know, show whether or not you're taking gifts or taking bribes or taking money from, you know, either any kind of, you know, entity, you know, good or bad. And 
I think the more that we get on the blockchain, the more we will be able to have honest discussions about, you know, the politics and the issues that we are addressing and doing it in a way where everybody knows where we're coming from. Um, the other thing I'm really excited about um, with Web3 journalism that's different from Web2 is it's all about how we want to use the technology. Um, I think something that we're all working through right now is writing about Web3, but still being used to the Web2 construction of an online and or print publication. And so something we're talking about at Super Magazine is working with artists to create NFTs that are a part of the article and then having sales from those NFTs going back into the community, either, you know, let's say it's an article about Ukraine and a, a, an artist or photographer gives us NFTs to then publish in that article, any sales can go back to, you know, a philanthropy or a charity of their choosing to help the people that we're writing about or the money can go into a, a foundation where we give money to artists and writers to go create that journalism that we want them to create. Because sometimes those really hard hitting stories will take six months to a year to write. They're gonna take multiple trips. It's gonna cost money. And so how can we utilize the visibility of storytelling in order to better serve our communities and not just using that for ad space, using it for something that actually generates a difference in our communities. So these are the conversations we're having at Super Magazine and they're the conversations we wanna share with all the other platforms too, because you know, as Alex said in the beginning, this is not a competition driven um, entity. This is a place where we're all kind of part of the same think tank and we're all setting the example for each other and whatever emerges as the best way at the time to use the technology, like let's all do it. There are so many people that we can help and we can help more people when we do it together. Well, yeah, I, I would just build on that I would, if possible and just um, say that I think uh, what Vinny says about um, driving an inclusive conversation is very important. But I would also uh, want to stress that even in the Web3 space, in fact, certainly in the Web3 space, there is also a plurality of politics and political ideologies. And I do think it's important that it, it, these don't get lost in the um, hype machine. And with that in mind, I just, if I may, I'd like to just quote uh, a couple of texts we've done. We, uh, Diane Drubay this week, uh, who, who does um, work with Tezos, she said that for the Tezos community, collection and donation are now habitual behaviors indicative of Web3's potential to draft new social contracts and generate greater equity. So on the one hand, we see that there are, um, I think, really kind of positive um, social solutions that are emerging in Web3. However, uh, we also published a text uh, this week by a, a, a decolonial scholar called Luke Hespanol, which was called NFTs and the Risk of Perpetual Colonialism. And he says, um, let's take some of the core tenets of the blockchain, decentralization, community self-governance, verifiable ownership, accountability, transparency. These are the core values of Western liberal democracies, which makes sense since that is where the technology originated. So it's just to, to point out that I think that there is, uh, you know, it's important that we find solutions which are socially uh, equitable, um, but also maybe to accept that um, some of the optimism is familiar optimism um, and maybe stale optimism even. It's a great perspective. Yeah, and I, I think we need that in our lives more because we're kind of stuck in our own little bubbles within Twitter, right? We don't see that macro level view sometimes. So that's, I really appreciate that. And we'll have to be um, subscribing to Right Click Save.
get some more awesome info like that. Appreciate it, Alex. But I think also, I would just say it is in the spirit of Web3, I think, actually, to embrace plural um, knowledges and, and, and different politics. And that is a kind of curiosity of this sort of libertarian field where you have these um, diverse politics colliding in strange ways. So anyway. Yeah, I just want to thank everybody for hopping on. This has been awesome. Like you said, like the media world within NFTs, Web3 in general, it's not a competition in our eyes. Like we would have had eight other people from other podcasts on here if it wouldn't get out of hand, you know? So I, I look forward to keeping doing these in the future and Vinny can't appreciate you enough for, you know, getting all this together and scheduling it up. And it's always fun talking to Dave whenever we get a chance. So that's awesome. Um, and I hope that all the listeners out there will go and check out all of those publications as well. And yeah, it's just been a wonderful time. I really appreciate everyone's time. Thanks guys for arranging. I really appreciate it. And Vinny for putting us in touch. Yeah, thank, you guys. thank you guys so much. And it was a, a pleasure. I, I learned a tremendous amount from uh, the other guests here as well. So looking forward to speaking with both of you more. Likewise. We'll keep striving together. We'll, we'll see you guys. <laughs> Appreciate it, everybody. Damn, that's nifty. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. That's nifty. That's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. Aphorius fears he leaked a plan. Exula worked on Iron Man. How cool is that? Mad Dog Jones, the dude so fine, he hand draws every single line. I sure as hell didn't know that. Fuck Render built the gallery to raise new artist popularity. What a guy. Yeah, man, it's Too much lag like a nomad, all his belongings in a single bag. All these things, can't you see? I learned all that's NFT. That's NFT. That's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. That's nifty. That's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. That's nifty. That's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. That's nifty. That's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. Damn, that's a nifty NFT.